I don't know what kind of pressures and stresses you have going on in your life. Uh, you know, we, we've got uh, uh, hundreds of, of people gathered together to listen to, to this message. And each one of you carries your own load. And for some of you, these may be the good old days you'll look back on and say, remember the good old days. But for some of you, they may be days of pressure. And there, I've got some friends I was emailing with about how they're doing in their life because I know they have a lot going on. And, and they, they, they are feeling the weight of the world right now. They're feeling the weight of the world because they're having problems at home. In addition to the problems at home, they're having problems of family, immediate family and extended family. These aren't small problems. These are heavy, heavy, heavy problems. They're having problems of, of health. And on top of it all, if you're having house problems, if you're having family problems, if you're having health problems, what always seems to go with it, money problems. And these are faithful people who know the Lord and love the Lord and are trying to see the Lord in the midst of all of this, but they're just really, really going through a heavy burden. And it touches me and it moves me to prayer and I don't know how to help other than to pray. But it was in my mind as I was working on the lesson for this week. And it was in my mind because as I look at the lesson this week, I ask myself the question, how do we handle it when our world is falling apart? And that's a really good question to ask because when we look at 2 Corinthians, we are seeing a glimpse into Paul at a time when his world, in our eyes, we could say, was falling apart. And it's as if we... Charles Mickey told me one time, he said, if you want to get to know Paul, study 2 Corinthians. You can learn his theology in Romans. You can do the Reader's Digest version of Romans called Galatians. You could do uh, uh, the joy in his heart, Philippians. You could see his father's heart in Timothy and in Philemon. You can see different things about his theology in different areas in Thessalonians and Ephesians. But if you want to get to know Paul, you study 2 Corinthians. Because this is a time where Paul's world's falling apart. In human terms. So, that's what I want us to do. Now, to do that, we've got to remember, this is a New Testament survey class where we're surveying the New Testament. We're actually going through the book of Acts, but we're plugging in the New Testament gospel, uh, um, epistles, the letters, where we think they were written. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we remember at this point, we've got Paul and he's over in Ephesus. And from Ephesus, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. I don't want to take the time to rehash all of the history we've done so far because you guys are good at keeping up with it. If you're new to the class or you're visiting the class, I'll give you enough of it to get a flavor. But you may want some more. So all of our classes are posted on the internet. Now, 
Paul's in Ephesus, and he's written a letter to the Corinthians called, we call it 1 Corinthians, and we talked about that last week. But what I'd like to do as we kind of refresh this is to, to see how Paul was handling his world falling apart We've got to put 2 Corinthians into its context. So we get a little bit of review. Here's what we can say. We know that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. He spent that time there during his second missionary trip. And it's the longest that we know of that he stayed in any town up to that point in a missionary effort. Not counting, for example, Antioch or Jerusalem or Tarsus. But it's the most direct time that we understand. And Paul was there. The church was not there before Paul arrived. But through Paul, God established the congregation or the church at Corinth. And over 18 months, Paul ministered in that church. He ministered with Priscilla and Aquila. He ministered with Timothy. He ministered with a number of people. Afterwards, Paul left. Paul went to Ephesus briefly, a couple of days, on his way back to Jerusalem. Then Paul went to Antioch and then made his way back through the Galatian churches. And as promised when he was in Ephesus for those few days, he returned. Paul spent nearly three years in Ephesus. Ephesus is like the Lubbock of Asia Minor. It's the hub from which everything seems to emanate. And so it was, from Ephesus, Paul was able to reach out into so many of the important communities like Level Land and Plainview and and Post and Hale Center. Um, but for Paul, those were towns like Colossae or Smyrna or Pergamum. And so from Ephesus, Paul has this outreach for a three, almost three-year period. During the time Paul's there, there are problems that are festering and growing in Corinth. And so Paul's trying to address those problems. We know that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Scholars will call it Corinthians A. So, Paul writes Corinthians A. If you need to know why, you can go to your written lesson, and it's reproduced there. It's a passage, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, where Paul says, Now, when I wrote to you... okay, So that tells us when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, he's already written Corinthians before. And so you don't want to say pre-1 Corinthians, so scholars just call it Corinthians A. Go to A, B, C instead of 1, 2, 3. Make sense? Okay. So you got Corinthians A. Now we also know that those problems Paul wrote the Corinthians about, the Corinthians replied to Paul. So we have the Corinthians writing Paul back. Okay, don't lose your ability to do that. We've moved on. But I do, well you see, there it is. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul has already written to the Corinthians. The Corinthians have already written back to Paul. And uh, 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 Paul's quoting, in fact, from their letter in the process of, of writing 1 Corinthians. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, I want to tell you, the fact that we're noticing this glitch 
underscores how incredibly good the people are who are actually doing this for us because 99.9% of the time, it's seamless. And so um, uh, we just need to say thank you to them because I'm sure knowing their hearts, I'm sure they're thinking, oh, this is horrible. Oh, I feel bad. Don't feel bad. I mean, this is part of life, okay? So they normally just do an incredible job. And uh, we're appreciative of them. So now we're back to the PowerPoint. So Paul writes the Corinthians. The Corinthians write him back. And then Paul writes them again. This is 1 Corinthians. This is what we, or what the scholars would call Corinthians B. We just call it 1 Corinthians because it's the first Corinthian letter in our Bible. See, the church is selected through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, those letters of Paul that made Scripture. There's this little part of me that wonders what he put in that other letter that God said, eh, eh, that's not staying in there. Because Paul had a little bit of a temper. And so there may be some things in there that just quite weren't quite good enough for posterity's sake. We don't know. But Paul writes, in addition to writing it, The problems are bad enough in Corinth that Paul sends Timothy and he sends Erastus to try and fix the problems. But they're not able to do it. And we know this. We can read about this in the Scriptures as well. We see a reference to it in Acts 19. But we can also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says he's going to send Timothy. And so we see if we... This is just an experiment to see how this works. Oh, look at that. They are good. So Paul says at the end of his first Corinthians letter, or Corinthians B, if you want to sound scholarly, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord, as am I. Don't despise him. Help him on his way, that he may return to me. So Paul's going to send Timothy, and he wants Timothy to return. Well, Timothy does return, and Paul determines when Timothy returns that things aren't any better. In fact, in some ways, things may be worse. So what Paul does, and we don't get this out of the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is is written with, with a point of getting Paul to Rome. I mean, Luke's really zoned in right now in getting Paul to Rome. So Paul spends three years in Ephesus, and we have two little stories that happen over those three years, by and large. Paul doesn't talk, I mean, Luke doesn't talk about when Paul went over to Pergamum or Smyrna or Colossae or any of the surrounding areas. Just says he was ministering to the surrounding areas. Okay? So we get the story in 2 Corinthians. We find out that Paul made a painful visit to the Corinthian church. Now, some scholars dismiss that. They say, well, this shows Acts is wrong, or this shows uh, Corinthians has got something messed up or anything. No, no, don't over-technicalize things. Just accept it. It is what it is. And Paul did what he says it did. And it makes perfect logical sense, especially if you consider that from Ephesus to Corinth took two days by boat. I mean, that's like, that, that's, have you ever, who in here has ever made a two day trip? See, it's not that rare. It happens. Paul made a two day trip. 
things were bad enough in Corinth that his letters weren't working, his emissaries weren't working, he went himself to try to get things fixed. Didn't work. It's what scholars now call the painful visit. Why? Look at what Paul says about the visit. Um... We see in, ah, there it is, thank you. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We see Paul reference the visit, starting with verse 23. This is the letter Paul wrote after that visit. Paul says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. That would be a third visit. Not that we lorded over your faith, But we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. But I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. See, so Paul made this painful visit. He says, if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is a great turmoil. This is a huge problem for Paul. This is a burden for Paul. If we return to the PowerPoint, thank you. So Paul goes there, that two-day journey, and he makes a visit that he later calls in his writings a painful visit. He says, I didn't come to you a third time. And in fact, he'll say at the end of Corinthians, that use that phrase, a third time. I didn't come a third time. So what do we have? Well, Paul makes a painful visit. Then he writes Corinthians C. And then he sends Titus. To try to make things right. But even with Titus, it's tough. Meanwhile, while all of that's going on, Paul is in Ephesus. And I'd love to tell you that he stayed there three years because it was a spa day for Paul. But it was not all good times in Ephesus. So while Paul's struggling and trying to figure out how to handle a church that's away from him, that, that's, that's causing him great personal grief, Paul felt very paternalistic, very fatherly about that church. And that church was ripping him up. And while that's going on, you've got him in Ephesus having a rough time there. Paul makes a reference in 1 Corinthians 15.32 to fighting with beasts in Ephesus. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, it's within the context of Paul talking about the resurrection. But in the context of it, Paul says, If I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what fruit is there in doing that if there's no resurrection? Why on earth would I risk my life? Why would I be willing to face the beasts? If there's no resurrection, I'm an idiot. I ought to be sitting at home, getting drunk, eating food, getting fat. 
if there is no God, there, eat, drink, and be merry. For what is the point of life? It's the fact that there is a God and there is a resurrection from the dead that enables me to fight with the beast. Because if I'm devoured, praise the Lord, I'm home. So Paul makes that reference. Now scholars read that. Some scholars dating back to Hippolytus. Hippolytus is the oldest commentator on the New Testament that we've got still today. The records of today. The commentaries of today. He's writing about 200 A.D. So he's writing about 140 some odd years after these events. And Hippolytus, who by the way would later die for his faith, a martyr's death in Rome. Hippolytus writes that Paul really did fight the beasts in Ephesus. Some scholars say no, we would have an indication of that in Acts. Well again, that's not what Luke's about in Acts. So that doesn't mean anything. Some scholars point out that, that there was an expression at the time... And we find it in a Jewish commentary, or a pesher, on the Old Testament book of Habakkuk that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Jews, it looks like, used the phrase of fighting with wild beasts to reference religious adversaries. So Paul may mean he, had, he would fight to the death with religious adversaries, or he may mean that he fought with beasts. If you read his letter to Timothy, it looks like it's later in life, but it looks like Paul at some point did fight with beasts. So this might have been the time. Regardless, it's something so severe that Paul's having a great deal of difficulty in Ephesus. And it doesn't end there. Paul ultimately leaves Ephesus because his co-missionaries or co-ministers are arrested and brought in front of uh, uh, the amphitheater that would hold 20,000 people because of this disruption of the way, which is what Luke calls, or what they called in Ephesus, the church. And so we read in Acts 19.23, there was, quote, no little disturbance about the way because this is going on. And, and it's the kind of thing that's so bad, some scholars believe Paul was arrested and actually ferreted out of jail. There's lots of speculation. But regardless of where you land on those issues, the bottom line is, is not only is Paul having to deal with these massive issues in Corinth, but ultimately he's having to deal with life and death issues himself each day in Ephesus. And Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Paul says, I have managed to get this all mixed up. Okay, Steve. Thank you. So, I brought all these sheets of paper and they're like all out of order. I'm playing 52 card pickup with scripture. So instead, let's do it this way. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction experienced in Asia. Now, Asia is Ephesus. Ephesus is the, the, the hub of Asia. Of the affliction we experienced, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, 
we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how bad it is for Paul. So Paul's got all of this stuff going on. He's got everything falling apart in Ephesus. And at the same time, if we could go back to the Elmo, I mean to the PowerPoint, at the same time, he's got everything going on in Corinth. And so with all of these things, let me add to it. Paul's booted out of Ephesus where he's been for almost three years. That means he's uh, got the Willie Nelson thing. He's on the road again. So, you know, it's one thing for your world to be crumbling and for you to have all of these pressures and stresses on you if at least you're in your comfort of home. But how about when you're not? How about when you're not in the comfort of where you've been living and you're on the road and you don't know where you're going exactly and you don't know how you're going to get there exactly and you're having to trust that you're going to be taken care of and the road itself had many dangers at that time. So Paul's on the road. And while he's on the road, he's getting word back. He's still getting these letters back. Have you ever gotten somebody... Let me ask you this. Who in here has ever been criticized... Who in here really enjoyed it and wished it just keep coming? Okay, that's a sign of mental health that you did not raise your hand. Because I want to show you how Paul's been criticized and minimized. Let's look at a couple of passages here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. And, and just see if you can't pick up. From what he says. Second Corinthians chapter 6. We'll look at verses 8 through 10. Alright. 6. Paul talks about how um, there's no obstacle he's going to put in the way of people coming to the faith. And he's going to present the faith through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true. We're treated as unknown. It's like you don't even know who I am, even though you know me well. We're treated as dying. Oh, you're death to me, even though we live. We're punished, yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're treated as poor, yet we're making many rich. We're treated as having nothing. Paul was looked down on. He was despised. Paul can't be successful. How can he be successful? He's broke. He's poor. He has to work for a living. If God were blessing him, doesn't Psalm 1 say... Blessed is the man, he'd be like the tree planted by the waters of life, whose fruit holds its leaf in its season and its fruit never, never withers. Well, it's pretty evident Paul's not blessed by God, he's poor, he's a nothing. He's basically dead. And this is, Paul says, this is the way we're treated. Look at chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. Paul says, 
And, and he's quoting people. Paul says, uh, look at verse 9. He says, look, I don't want to be trying to scare you with my letters. Because Paul can write pretty strong letters. For they say, he knows what they're saying about him. They say his letters are weighty and strong. But he's a wimp. That's a colloquial translation. His bodily presence is weak. He's all talk. He's really good at writing the tough stuff, but you've seen him. He's a cream puff. His speech is of no account. Of course, Paul does say, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. And ultimately, he kind of like has some, he's not a wimp. (laughs) He has some pretty strong things to say to them at the end of the letter. But Paul's criticized. Paul's minimized. Now, I'd love to tell you that that's all Paul had going on. And other than that, he was having a great day. There we go. But no. Remember his thorn in the flesh that he prays three times for God to get rid of? That's going on during all of this time as well. So here you've got Paul. The church he cares about so dearly that he spent so much time in, that he's invested so much in. He sent Apollos there. Didn't do any good. People just said, man, now that's a guy worth following. Peter, it looks like, had been there. This is a church that's a central hub. This is a church with one harbor that goes to Rome and one harbor that goes to Greece and the Mediterranean world that way. This is a town that's a sailor's town that's got so much impact on the world. This is a town that could be that bridge that could send the gospel out to both sides of the Mediterranean. Paul cares deeply about the people in this town. And yet it's just ripping him up. And they're ripping him up. And they're doing it at a time where his defenses are down. They're doing it at a time where he's sick. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. We'll talk about different options. But whatever it was, it was weighing him down significantly. So, how did Paul handle it when his world was cratering around him? That's what I'd like us to look at this morning. And then we'll save the rest of 2 Corinthians for next week. And I want us to do it by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to go through verses 3 and 11. And I happen to have my sheet here, so I will not have to write up all over Steve's Bible. I can write on uh, these sheets. Look at this with me and see what we can learn. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father, Of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's very standard for Paul to put in a letter. But in this letter. At this time in Paul's life. That's not where he ends it. The father. Of mercies. The God. Of all comfort. Who comforts us. In all our affliction. I want to pause for a minute. I want to talk about this. 
Paul didn't have his home base in Ephesus. Paul didn't have his family. Paul didn't have the support of the Christian community in Corinth he started. But Paul was okay because those were not the true source of his comfort. Now don't get me wrong, God works through his people. And we are to be a source of comfort. We're to be God's source of comfort to those who are in anguish. But that's us being God's source of comfort. And Paul understood, God is the comforter. It's God who reaches out. It's God who's father to the fatherless, husband to the widow. It's God who is the ministering presence, the father of all mercies. And so Paul starts there. To God who comforts us in all our affliction. Now why? Look at the way Paul continues. This so that. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul, he's like the ever-ready bunny. He's got every reason in the world to check out. He's got every reason in the world to say, you know, I'm burned out. I need a few years off. He's got every reason in the world to say, uh, time for recreational drugs and drinking. He's got every reason in the world to do comfort eating. He's got every reason in the world to find any possible cop-out or check-out there is. But not Paul. Paul says, my comfort's from God, God's comforting me, and the most fantastic part about it is as a result, I'm going to be able to comfort other people. This is enriching me for ministry. I'm going to be able to extend God's comfort. Because just as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is a chance for me not just to know the sufferings of Christ, but to know the comfort of Christ so that I can take those of you who are suffering and share that comfort with you. And how does he do it? He starts out by pointing them to God. Because comfort comes from God. And doesn't that make sense? Can I just pause and insert something for the intellect for the moment? Honestly. Doesn't it make sense that the God who oversees this world is the source of your comfort? Because who's going to really protect you? Who's going to make sure you don't go past the breaking point? Who's going to make sure things are made right at the end? Who's going to make sure you don't starve to death? Who's going to make sure that your family's made whole? Upon whom are you relying for whatever it is that's causing you distress if it's not God? 
And so Paul says, hey, this is wonderful. If we're afflicted, at least it's got a purpose. Paul says, if we're afflicted, it's so we'll know how to comfort you and help you. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. It's for your salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. And that's what Paul did. Paul says, I'm just going to patiently endure. I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, knowing who it is that's walking with me and knowing I'm walking his path. And to the extent I'm learning something here that's going to allow me to bless someone else who's in a tough situation, I'll tell you this. How many people have said to you, hey, I know how you're feeling, when they had no clue how you were feeling? That can be very hollow. We were taught when I was in school that if, if when I was studying uh, uh, one of the classes we had to study to, to, to be a preacher, I've referenced it before. It's called Practical Aspects of Preaching. It was basically weddings and funerals. But one of the things they taught us at funerals is don't go up to a family who have lost a son. Don't go up to a grieving parent who has lost a son prematurely and say, I know how you feel. Because you don't. And that's very hollow if you don't. On the other hand, if you have lost a son or a daughter, or you have walked in that path, you actually have credibility that enables you to say, I know how you feel. And I, I grieve with you. Paul's able to say, hey, I'm going through a really tough time, but that's okay because I know as I patiently endure this, I'm learning things that I'm going to be able to teach to you to make your walk with the Lord better. Who could ask for a greater day than that? So Paul finds an ability to rejoice in the Lord always, as he'll write later to the Philippians. Paul says, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And this is where he starts out and he says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we suffered in Asia. And I read you this earlier. But he talks about, it, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. And look at the end of where he takes this. He says, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So in the midst of the suffering, the suffering drives us to God, not to alternatives. To God who raises the dead. And he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us from what we're still enduring. On him we have set our hope. That he will deliver us again. For Paul, it was not a one-shot deal. Well, he helped us from the really bad beast where we were going to die in, in, in Ephesus. 
But it was so much more than that. Everything Paul had going on, this is why Paul later can write with integrity to the Philippians when he says, be worried in nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication or requests. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then where does he add? And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So are we surprised that the Paul who would write that, who walked through these fires to produce that experience in him, would be the Paul who said, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayer makes a difference. So here's Paul saying, with all of the suffering going on, with everything that's helping, we've set our hope on him who has power over the grave. And we're confident just as he's delivered us, he will continue to deliver us. And we know that all of this is going to work out for the good, for those who love the Lord. And this is, these are the fires of turmoil that produced the Paul who's able to write by the inspiration of the Spirit genuine truths he's experienced in his own life. I have a friend who wrote to me about the Second Corinthians in the lesson. And he's a friend of this class, John Monson. He says, you know, when I read the Gospel of John, I want to be like Jesus. But when I read this stuff about Paul, I want to be like Paul. That doesn't mean Paul's taking the place of Jesus. It's actually a godly thing. Paul will tell the Philippians to imitate him, to do the things they've seen in him. And we find godly people, we should try to learn from their godly experience and model ourselves after them. So it's a tremendous, tremendous thing. If we go back to the PowerPoint, this is Paul. And even when Paul is is being ridiculed, being made light of, being insulted, he still lands here. He's got purpose before the Lord, and that purpose trumps everything else. So you see him like, I read to you from later on in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, here's the passage that ends it. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for... When I am weak, then I'm strong. And if you continue reading, he's strong because that's when he's most clearly relying on the Lord. So, where does that leave us? Psalm 11.3 is one of my favorite psalms. The psalmist says, If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do?
I like that psalm because the psalmist has Paul's perspective. Not surprising. Or Paul, I guess, had the psalmist's perspective. The psalmist says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. His eyes behold the children, the sons of men and women. The psalmist says, God is on his temple. You can let the foundations be destroyed. You can let the world fall apart. God is there and God is not asleep and God is not non-observant and God's not distracted. God is watching everything that's going on and God is your rescue. God is your ransom. God doesn't pluck us out from under stress and strain and distress and put us on the golden road to Oz. God says, I will walk with you I will be your strength and I will see you through these fires and they will purify you and make you a more holy vessel for my services and where I need to use you. It is an immature faith for us to say, God, would you please make my life trouble free? After all, the goal behind the world is for Mark Lanier to have a trouble free life. Isn't that really what Jesus meant when he said, uh, pray your kingdom come? That he was really meaning, pray, God, make sure in this entire world, Mark Lanier has a trouble-free life. No. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about God and his kingdom. And if you and I need to walk through times of distress... And we need to walk through calamities and we need to walk through hardships and we need to learn to endure insults and we need to learn to stand in faith expecting deliverance from God. If that's what it takes to make us His vessels for His kingdom, then guys, that's what we signed up for. And I want to tell you something. That's purpose and meaning to life. That's a reason to get up. It's a reason to live. And it's a reason to die. With the calling of Jesus comes great responsibility. I'd love to stand up here and just preach to you, oh, come to Jesus and you'll never have a problem in your life. I can't do that. I'll say this though, you come to Jesus and you will find the strength to handle any problem that comes to you in life. That's the assurance. So if the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Lean on the Lord. Seek His hand. Follow Him. Hold tight. And patiently endure. Pray for each other. Pray for me. I pray for you. There is no excuse. And I'm ashamed of the fact for most of my life I didn't do this. But there is absolutely no excuse until you... There is an excuse till someone tells you. Now that I'm telling you, you ain't got an excuse anymore. I just... I'm about to rip your excuse out. So if you want to keep excuses, go like this. La, 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 While I tell you this, okay? Absent that, you'll have no excuse once I say it. Steve knows this. There is no excuse for you 
not to have a list of people to pray for. There's just no excuse. Unless you're going to sit there and say, I have a photographic memory where I can, you know, I've done the memory room thing that Hearn emails me about. And I go through each room of the house and I associate each room with someone and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Absent the rain man ability to do that. There is no excuse for you not to have a list of people to be praying for. Paul says pray for me. Prayer makes a difference. Point for home two. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. If God does not rescue his son from the cross and bring him down, because the son must die for the kingdom to come, then we can rest assured that God is willing and wanting us to walk through whatever we must walk through, to share in the sufferings of Christ for the kingdom to come. And if that's what we've got to do, we should not do it whimpering, oh, why do I have to suffer? Well, I mean, we can, but do it quietly. And just at the same time, let grow within you the voice that says, you have been counted worthy by God in His plan to share in the sufferings of His Son. The sufferings that only come because we live in a fallen world. But we are believers in the Lord Jesus who resurrects on that last day. And who has everything under control. And so, yes... Troubles are there, but I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun till the setting of the same. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Blessed be your name. Praised be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On him, Paul says, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You know, I've got my friends sending me that email. And of course, Becky and I are human. We've got issues in life that, that are always there for us as well. I'm so thankful to have such a wonderful spouse to share it with. I can't imagine what it would be like not to. But I want to tell you, the reason there will be victory in the end, as marvelous and as godly as my wife is, the reason there will be victory in the end is not because of Becky. My deliverer is coming. And he will not stop until deliverance is made full. Yeah, we thank him for that. We thank him for that. Would you pray with me and let me bless you with a word. Father, as we bless the Lord Jesus, I pray a prayer of blessing over all who hear this message. Lord, that your, your deliverance would reach those who are hurting. That your comfort would come to them. That you would give them the strength for that patient endurance. That you would give them the vision that you're preparing them 
for a mighty work, a special, a unique work in your kingdom. That you're seeking to purify, that you're seeking to grow faith, that you're seeking to grow focus, that you're seeking to grow perseverance, seeking to grow self-control, seeking to grow kindness and gentleness, seeking to grow patience, seeking to grow your spirit in the midst of the wrecking ball that is this world around us. So Lord, humbly we come to you as your children, all in different places right now of need, but all of us in need of you. And we ask for your mercies and your tenderness and your comfort, your guidance. We pray for your your encouragement. We, we pray that in this fellowship we will lift each other up. Motivate us, Lord, to pray for others. Even as we set our own concerns before you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.